All right, so let's, let's jump in, uh, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all your many blessings, especially for bringing us into the fellowship of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in his church. Uh, we ask that you would bless us together as we run the race that's set before us, um, the race that's already been won by Christ, and he gives us the victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 12. This is probably one of the most famous parts of Hebrews. Um, for our guests especially, but for everyone really, uh, we should go back and review what we, what, what we just read over the last, what, three weeks? Yeah, it took us three weeks to do chapter 11. Um, just so you understand kind of context, so I'm going to scroll rapidly. Hopefully it's not too vomitous for you. Getting motion sick yet? No? All right. All right, so the end of chapter 10 ended this way. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have have faith and preserve their souls. That's, uh, that's ESV. Let's switch over to uh, my preference, New King James. Here we go. A little bit better. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. Uh, have you read uh, Pilgrim's Progress? The Road to Perdition? Okay. Uh, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. That's a little bit more accurate to the Greek. All right, now faith, this is also famous, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Well, you could think of today's sermon for that, could you not, right? No. Sorry, I'm going to remove the business from the board so you're not confused. What's going on here? What are we talking about? Yeah, Ethan's causing a problem and it monopolizes our conversation. My son, this, my son Ethan here was the organist. So, but he's going to Concordia Seward to study church music, so he won't be able to play for us, and it's causing all sorts of problems, because people don't play organ anymore. So, there you go. All right, anyway, what were we talking about? Yeah, this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand, uh, we understand, right, the world, that's you and I, the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen uh, we're not made of things which are visible, right? So God made out of nothing, right? And so he's making the church out of nothing as well, <laughs> if you like. Um, and then what happened is we started with Abel and we had examples, uh, many examples. How many? Ten, I think. Examples. I think it's ten. And the reason for all these examples is to prove the point that we just read, Right? By faith we understand, but this one, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, right? And so we look and we see in the examples of the patriarchs and the prophets and David, uh, the way that they heard the word of God and they acted according to the word and not necessarily according to their experience, their sensories, right? Uh, maybe a good example that's not given in there would be, you know, when the spies go into Canaan and they say, it's ready for the taking. Well, not exactly. There's a lot of armies. It's not going to be easy. And then the people of Israel are like, oh, never mind then. And God's like, look, I told you I was going to give it to you. And you don't believe me. So now you get to wander for 40 years. <laughs> All right? And none of you are going to get to go in, only your children. Right? Um, you know, and then Joshua takes them in. And God does give them to conquer the people. But in the story of the conquest, it's not God's people that, that actually do it right? They just get to, they get to pick up the, uh, the spoils of victory that are left behind. It's the angel of the Lord that goes before them, right? 
the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, I think that example is given in here, isn't it? The example of Joshua, Sarah. All right, we do need to jump in here at this middle part. We talked about this last week. So this is the middle of chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. So remember the diagram of the timeline? So all these people who came before Christ, they're looking forward, trusting in the promise, but not yet having seen it, right? Not in any real way, all right? Even, even some of the types are shadows of Christ, you know, like, um, you know, the way that... Um, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, here's the ram in the thicket to take the place of your son. Do not slay your son, right? And that's Jesus saying, I'm going to be your, his substitute, right? We can see that now, but we have the benefit of, what do we call that? Hindsight, Hindsight 2020, right? Razor sharp. Um, they don't, right? They embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Um, and so remember last week we talked about this. There were kind of like three promises, right? That they would be a nation, that they would have a land. What was the third? Uh-oh, my memory's failing me. All right. Oh, the city. There it is. Right at the end, right? The city. So the city, the land, and of course that they would be a great nation. Right? Those are Abraham's promise. But that's what they were looking forward to, too. But they recognized that even, this is the assertion from the, from the preacher teacher here, that even um, what they did receive, the, like Canaan, the promised land, or the holy city, Jerusalem, it was the promise, but it also wasn't quite yet the promise. So this is what uh, the theologians call, um, I think I've told you the technical term, inaugurated eschatology. Anybody remember that? You're like, what? It's big words, right? Inaugurated eschatology. It just means, uh, you could shorten it up and just say that we have, we have now all the promises of Christ, but we also don't quite have them yet, right? Like you're saved from, your, from sin, death, and the devil, even now. But you also still have flesh and blood and you haven't yet seen the resurrection. So it's also not yet realized. Of course, that all ties in well with what we were hearing this morning in the sermon, right? It is the supper of the Lamb. You're surrounded by saints and angels and the whole cloud of witnesses, as we'll see in chapter 12 here. And yet, you don't see them. And you don't really hear the angels singing with you, even though you're singing with them, right? And all the saints and all of, you know, that come before you. What are some other ways? You have your wedding garments, right? The baptismal garments that you've been clothed in. That's the tailored suit, by the way, in case you wanted to didn't make the connection and the gown all right you made the connection thanks um you have those already as your i mean you've been baptized right i mean you've been clothed already in christ and yet you don't see yourselves clothed in sparkling white and you know um as say the apocalypse shows revelation all right so that that's what the writer is saying they're all living by faith not because they've experienced it maybe in little bits but but there's this huge not yet that they recognize this, this is our, the country that he's promised to us, but it's not really the country. That, um, you like to post on Facebook, or you hearted a post on Facebook that I posted in a negative way. Did you understand? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, it was an article from Slate, I think, or was it Salon? This is what I do, because Facebook doesn't like you to post from like conservative sites, because they'll, 
put you in a little box and say, this is one of those crazy right-wing people, right? So I only post from like liberal websites. And so usually it's, I'm posting it as a negative example, not as a positive. Um, so this was a critique of uh, uh, Mastriano, right? The senator, state senator in Pennsylvania that um, is kind of on the Trump train and all of that. Anyway, criticizing him for his faith. Uh, I, don't think the art, I don't think the writer was completely wrong, though. Because have you bumped into Christians who, like, say that in America is like God's promised land? Like, this is God's chosen nation? They quote the psalm, which we prayed a couple of weeks ago. You know, what is it? Blessed is the nation that trusts in the Lord, right? Have you ever encountered those kind of folks? Yeah, it's God and country, right? Um, the, you know, your country is a blessing to you from God. It's a gift to you from God, especially if the country itself protects and preserves, say, your liberties, in particular, religious liberty, right? That's a gift from God. Um, sometimes God gives you the country that you actually want and deserve, which doesn't look so nice, <laughs> right? Because um, that's the thing that we struggle with today is that people really want, um, they want thing, they want our country to be something other than what was really, well, we'll just say it this way. A socialist nation leading towards communism um, because it's worked so well in the past. Right. I mean, it's idealistic is what it is. It's basically trying to, this is a side note, but since we're talking about country, um, to replace this biblical vision of, of a promised land, land flowing with milk and honey, where there's peace and justice and righteousness, and to suggest that that can be accomplished on earth apart from God and apart from his word, which of course is God and his word doesn't promise it anyway. Right? So he, we're always going to be strangers and pilgrims, as it says here. Right? On this earth. All right. I'm here, yeah, I'm but a stranger here. And it's not one of my favorite hymns, but I always quote it. So <laughs> because it's, in my, it's, got a, it's, a, it's got a great tune. All right. Anyway, so that's, that's that little interlude in the middle. Then we go to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Esau, and Joseph, and Moses. Moses gets lots of, he gets lots of press here. Oh, Moses is a pretty significant figure in the Old Testament, right? And then notice here at the end. Oh, here it is, Jericho. That's what we were talking about, going into the promised land, right? The walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled seven days. Did the people blowing the trumpets or doing the walk, did that, is that what made the walls fall down? No, God just told them to do it. God's the one who tore the walls down. They just got to walk in and, yeah, take care of it. And of course, God, because if they caused the walls to fall down, then why didn't the wall fall down where Rahab and her family were? Oh, wait a minute. You mean God was doing it? The, he was preserving her and he was destroying the rest? Kind of like, say, Noah and the flood. Destroys the world with a flood, but he preserves Noah and his family, right? Believing Noah, which I always find kind of funny because his faith is a, is a lot like mine. Apparently it's enough to save. <laughs> but, uh, Noah is kind of a mess, like most of the saints, all right? Oh, and then what about... Uh, Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, right? Remember? Okay, summary statement. And then all of these things that we talked about, the experience of them. Um, there was a handout. It's underneath the blue book from last week. I actually gave the, the full excerpt from, um, is it first or second? We decided it was second Maccabees. Second Maccabees because the, um, one of these examples seems to be taken straight out of the apocryphal books in between Old Testament, New Testament. 
which one was that, do you think? Not sawn in two. That was from that apocryphal death of Isaiah, right? The pseudopigrapha. Remember that fancy word? Anybody remember? No? Okay. I'll just keep saying it and eventually you'll remember it. Pseudopigrapha. False writings. Attributed to somebody but not actually. Christian fan fiction, like in the back behind you. Yeah. All right. Um, we talked about the, 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 oh yeah, the lion's den, right? Um, we also saw the people hiding away. And here's the conclusion. All right. Whew. That was a lot of backtracking, but that's okay. And all these, meaning all these people, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Do you remember what we said about this? Yeah. They still are looking, we're looking forward to the coming Christ and salvation through his cross, right? And now we actually have the fruits of the cross in his body and blood. I mean, they didn't receive the supper. They didn't have baptism. I mean, all these things. And, but now there's this timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly thing going on. That's from Doctor Who, if you care. You don't care. Um, because now he's saying, but now they're all, all of that gets retroactively applied to them after Christ comes. So they didn't experience it in their lifetime, but after their death, they will experience it in this retroactive way. He saves them because of their faith and what he accomplishes in the future. In our case, it's different though, right? We're saved by something that was accomplished 2,000 years ago, which we now receive by faith, but which we can actually see with our eyes, right? Because we have, there were the eyewitness, there's the eyewitness testimony, which we can experience with our, um, we talked about baptismal clothing before you came in, Don and Karen, um, or especially with the supper, right? Eat and drink, right? Which he instituted. All right, so that's kind of our, our recap. Any questions so far? I've just been, as the kids say, ranting. Was, good, I got a chuckle. That's all right. So here's where we're going to do it. We're just going to do the first two verses. And we'll see how far we get after that. <laughs> all right, who wants to read? Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which, we easily, which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. All right. I actually quoted this in the sermon at the end, didn't I? It must have been, I had already started preparing the Bible study before I wrote the sermon, so that's what ends up happening. Like, I'm not even thinking about it. I just, just straight up quoted it and didn't even. It's a thing. Well, we'll see this in Hebrews 12 as well, is that this preacher teacher, he doesn't tell you where anything comes from. He doesn't do that thing, that prompt. You all right, Karen? Yeah, I have to Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm being more sensitive because was it? I can't remember who it was. The sun was shining right in their eyes. and oh, barf. barf, yeah. <laughs> I didn't notice. Um, what were we just talking about? Sorry, now I got distracted. Squirrel? Squirrel? Oh, right, he doesn't tell you what he's quoting, yeah. So, um, you know, sometimes he'll prompt, and he'll say, like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, right? 
Uh, I don't really usually bother with that. I mean, if you want to know, usually I'll note it in the manuscript so you can actually find it, but even then I don't always quote it. Um, because it's like, you know, you guys all know it. <laughs> you, know, you know the thing, right? Yeah, you know the thing. And then what's great is when you read Luther's sermons, he does the same thing, and then the editors are like, because you'll say, well, you know, like in Romans, and it's, no, it's in Galatians. He gets mixed up all the time. When he does cite it, he gets it wrong. So that's where I learned to say, just don't even cite it. And then someday if somebody decides that it's worth reading again, they're going to go look it up and figure out what it actually is. Make sense? All right, so I quoted this in the sermon. That was the long way around for that. Um, we also, right, just like them, all those people we heard about, Barak and Samson and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses. We, we had in mind Daniel and Azariah. What were the three young men's names? Not, the, not, their, not their Babylonian names. They're Hebrew names. I don't know their Hebrew names. What? I tried to memorize them one year and I can't remember. No, it's Azariah as one. I know that. Mishael? Yeah, good. Oh, this is a deep cut. Do you, do you play like Trivial Pursuit? <laughs> yeah. All right. So anyway, there's a third one. Somebody will find it. Ethan will find it. All right. Since we are surrounded, we also, by so, great, by so great a cloud of witnesses. All right. Now, I think this is important that he says, he calls it a cloud because what's the properties of a cloud? Like if you're in the cloud. Okay, there's water. Thanks, Gabe. Okay, in terms of your eyes. Mist. Yeah. Yeah, they're coming out of the mist, right? Like the misty mountains. Mm. Yeah, you can't... They're there. It's foggy. Right, it's exactly. It's foggy. When the cloud descends, it's foggy. Right? So they're there, but do you see them? Nah, kind of, right? Yeah, you see the shadow. It's like, uh, like the man who Jesus heals twice from his blindness. The first time, what's he say about the people? Doesn't he say they're like, they're like trees? I'm surrounded. He calls them like trees walking, I think. Isn't that what he says? Yeah, and then Jesus has to heal him again. Because the first time he doesn't see people, he just sees, you know, groots walking around. Shadows. Yeah. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. There you go. Where is that? Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. There we go. Yeah, those are his three friends. All right, good. We all know him from the kids, you know, from Sunday school. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because that's what Nebuchadnezzar's not going to call them by their Hebrew name. No, no. All right. Um, so we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning they're there, but we don't see them. Got it? I think that's what he's doing. Let us lay aside every weight. So um, people who train for like, um, events, they do this in the military, you'll wear like a pack, right? I forget what they call it, a rucksack. They fill it with weights, right? So that you, you build up your endurance. So then when you don't have the weight, it's like, yeah, that's easy. You ever done that? Oh, yeah, you should do that. You've done that? Put weights on you when you do push-ups? Yeah, exactly. Then you can really bulk up. That or you could juice up with some steroids. <laughs> then you'll look like the rock. Um, so this is what you do. Well, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about Greek runners. 
Have you ever, ever uh, seen a, a truly like Greek Olympiad? It'd be a lot more interesting, but it's not how we do it today. Yeah, because they don't wear any clothes. Right. So he's saying, you know, strip down because you're going to run a race. That's what he's talking because that's what's going to come next, right? Endurance for the race. So take off everything that would encumber you. That's why they would do that. Because you're going to be a lot faster. I don't know if that's true for swimming, by the way. This is a side note. I get a little more conversational in Bible class, sometimes off the topic. I think in clouds. And it's like, woo. Okay. You know swimmers? I, I think with swimmers, probably the swimsuit actually makes them faster than if they were just swimming, you know, as God made them. So... <laughs> Anyway, because aerodynamics, because they, they, it's weird fabric and it's got like for fluid motion. I forget, what, is that what they call it in, in physics? Nobody here has taken physics. The fluid, water has strange properties on the surface of things. What's that? Is that what it's called? Okay. Oh, something like that. Yeah, anyway. Uh, but in this time, they didn't have all that fancy technology. You know, like in a wind tunnel, how they, they'll change the contours. Because for aerodynamics, there's fluid dynamics. That's it. All right. Anyway. Uh, but these guys, they're going to run without any extra weight because that's just going to hold you down, right? So what weight is our, our uh, we to set aside? Yeah. It, it's not very specific, is it? It just says every weight, right? Every weight. The sin which so easily ensnares us. So just set aside whatever, if you want to think of the sermon today, I said it a couple times, um, you know, whatever gets in the way of Jesus, of running the race. Just set it aside. Like, really? You can just do that? Yeah, you can. Right? What if it's something you really like? Well, that's a little bit harder, right? Setting aside something for time even, or forever, that you actually enjoy, which is probably one of the things that people don't remember. Because we talk so negatively about sin, the problem is that we actually like it, we don't talk enough probably about how great sin is. We should do that someday. You know, for, write, write some kind of parody hymn. Really shock you all. Start singing some hymn about how great sin is. When I look down, dun, dun, how great sin art. Yeah. You could do it? All right. <laughs> I'm not interested in shocking people. Maybe startling you. I need to do that with Cole today. He fell asleep during the sermon. Apparently I had a long day yesterday. I always said that's nice though. If people fall asleep during the sermon, I'm like, oh, like, you know, they're comforted, right? Perhaps. Or bored. Or bored. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I tend to go with the first rather than the... So, um, so set aside every sin, right? Anything that gets in the way of Jesus, just set it aside. Right? Easier said than done. Jesus actually has to take it from you, doesn't he? Uh, and let us, that's what we call a hortatory conjunction in Greek. Um, let us, let us, it's, um, I don't know, have we talked about hortatory before? It's kind of an instruction, but it's not quite like imperative, like set aside. It has that kind of invitation aspect to it when we have that, when that with that kind of Greek construction. So set aside, you know, those things and let us, there's like an invitation to run. Really, if, if you're going to make it, you're going to have to run. But he's inviting you to join the race. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Because um, you don't run it alone. Really? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Let us, let, uh, oh, well, actually, it says it right there. Let us run, meaning who's in the race? Everybody, yeah. All Christians are in the race. Right. 
Um, and everybody gets a trophy at the end. Participation. Everybody gets a participation trophy. <laughs> this is the only time that actually works. Okay. All, the church is the only place where it's not merit-based. But the rest of your life actually has to be merit-based. If it's not merit-based, it's that, that strange, distorted version of Christianity, which is called socialism. <laughs> Again, they're just trying to take the place of Christianity by saying everybody's not only equal, but we have to make everything equitable. Everybody gets the same thing, right? Which means everybody gets nothing. Yeah. Everything is merit-based. Mm. Right, correct. Yeah, but he actually, actually, the scriptures do say you get to receive the crown of life. Does sound like a trophy to me. Yeah, I mean it's a laurel wreath, right? It's not gold or something, but. But you didn't, yeah. Well, because everybody runs and they all win, because Jesus already ran it and he already won, and we're joined to him. He's the runner. We'll talk about that in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so let us run with endurance. That's a cool word. Um, we should probably talk about. The race that is set before us. All right, so, so you know what the race is. You know what it's set before us. How do you know the race? How do you know the route? How do you know what's expected? God's yeah, God's word. But actually, he tells you. Because right at the center of these two verses is Jesus. Yeah, looking at Jesus. So Jesus ends up being, um, you know, I disparage Jesus as an example. Like the what would Jesus do kind of, you know, remember the bracelets? Yeah, I've kind of disparaged that because he's not primarily a moral example, like showing us what we should do and what we shouldn't do, because that would just make him a lawgiver. And you heard from Ephesians today is like, no, actually, he, no, that's done. He finished the law. Um, but in this regard, he does show us the life of, of the faithful, right? Is what's the race that's set before us? Well, here it is. Well, he's actually the author and finisher of the race, of, the fa of our faith. So there's the important part. He's already finished, which is great. Now you just get to, it's like an exhibition race. Isn't that what they would call that? It's, it's a charity run. <laughs> we'll call it a charity run. Right? Except the char it's Jesus' charity to us. Okay, I guess. Oh, I love pioneer. Pioneer is a great pioneer word. Yeah, pioneer. I've said trailblazer before. Yeah, author is pretty good. I wonder what the little one said. See these little numbers? All right, it's fun to roll over and find out what happens. Originator. Oh, that's kind of fun. I should probably look at the Greek. It's very small. Oh, the archagon. Ooh, that's kind of a fun. Like architect, right. He's the first goer. A first goer. Um the author and finisher of our faith, right? So now we participate in it. It's ours. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? Which, that connects us back to Hebrews 2. We're not going to go back to uh, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. <laughs> You've got all sorts of stuff being drawn in here into this little bit. Um, but Jesus is at the center. So, um, the, uh, we kind of have to back out. We're, we're surrounded. Look at the first verse. We should probably do it this way. I don't know if this is true, but it, it seems like Jesus is at the center and then things mirror, right? So, 
we have the cloud of witnesses. What's at the end of this section? Yeah, the right hand of the throne, right? Huh. Uh, where, are the, where are the witnesses? The cloud of witnesses. These are the witnesses of heaven, right? Where's the throne of God? Heaven. All right, so we got, got a connection there. Uh, let's keep working our way in. Uh, laying aside every weight. Right? Every weight. And then we have Jesus despising the shame, right? And then that enduring word, huh, enduring uh, the race, right, run the race, enduring, right? And then we have enduring with Jesus too, right? Enduring the cross, huh? I don't know. Maybe I'm making too much of this here, but and what goes before that? And then endure the race, looking at Jesus. Oh, the race. And the race, and I would, then you could probably equate the race with the faith, right? Set before. And who's at the center? Jesus. So here is Jesus as the example, right? He's the one at the right hand of God, right? He's the one who runs the race, who finishes it, authors it actually, trailblazes it, originates it, however you want to put it. And what is it to run the race? Is it to endure the cross, despise the shame, right? Until you're received into the great cloud of witnesses. That's it. Jesus shows you the way. He even says he is the way, doesn't he? Yes, he does. That's right. I am the way. Why did I say that connected well with today? I think it connected well with um, wisdom, right? Old te the Proverbs text, Proverbs 9, and then your opening hymn that Ethan picked, which was... What God ordains is always good, right? And that's the problem with this, right? With Jesus. Because the things that he, that he sets before us, the, things that he, the race that he ran, doesn't look very good, does it? And then in this strange, you know, strange neologism is the technical word. <laughs> to make a new word, right? We call it Good Friday. Like, how is, Friday, how is Good Friday good? Yeah, it's victory over death, but victory, paradoxically, by death, right? And it's the glory of God in the midst of thick darkness. Well, what man intended for evil, God brought good out of Correct, correct. All right, so there's all that. That's, what we, that's a paradox, right? Where things, two things that don't really seem to work together, they actually, but they belong together. All right, there's probably more that I could say about this, but... We talked about running naked. We got that covered. I'm trying to think. I'm looking at uh, Dr. Kleining's book because he always has something fun to say. We talked about being a forerunner, Jesus being the high priest, da 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 da, taking the seat at the right hand of God. Okay. Um, I don't think if there's anything else I wanted to cover there with the text. I said we talk about the endurance word. That's actually the thing. Yeah, Ethan. Speak up so everybody can hear you. In verse 2, mm -hmm. the author and finisher, that's, I think that's basically another way of telling the, the readers that he is the Alpha and Omega of our faith. So if he's the architect, oh, I see. finisher or perfecter, right. begin, beginner and 
Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's not your race to run. The race has already been set up for you. Just run it. It's, the path's already set. It's, this is like when you go to, this, to the... Um, yeah, this is not off-road biking or, <laughs> or hiking or something. Yeah, there's the trail. It's already set. You know the destination. They tell you two miles ahead is, is your destination. Just walk the trail, right? Yeah, and it's, so it's given to you is what you're trying to say. Yeah. The whole, the whole faith, the race, the, everything that's set before you, including the finish line. No, I did want, and so I wanted to, before we move on to the rest, I wanted to share with you, I thought Dr. Kleinig had a nice, Dr. Kleinig, you know John Kleinig? Heard of John Kleinig? No, of, yeah. He's a, um, has an expertise in, among other things, Old Testament exegesis. See the commentary on Leviticus. I'm just reading the back of the book. Uh, this is an excellent prerequisite. No, okay, that doesn't tell you any more about Kleinick. Um, he is now retired um, professor of New Testament in, at uh, Adelaide Seminary in, in Australia um, and a friend of our, our church body. Probably not, not long to be a friend of his own church body because they're going to ordain women, which he's been vehemently opposed to. So. He may get run out, but it doesn't really matter since that church is going to fracture. It's probably what's going to happen this time. Next convention they have. All right. Sorry, that's sad. Uh, here's what he says. Uh, all right. In contrast with the false witnesses and deceptive visions of Jeremiah 23, which we don't have to talk about, um, they, they, meaning the saints, bear you, bear witness to the crucified and exalted Lord Jesus as the one who fulfills all God's promises. Okay, here we go. Thus, even though the congregation is surrounded by this cloud of witnesses when it gathers for the divine service, it does not look to them in faith, but to Jesus, who is present there with them. Right? So we talked about this. We have all these people that came before, but they're not really great examples for us. I mean, Abraham tried to sell off his wife to Pharaoh, what, twice? Um, Noah got drunk after he got saved through the ark. Drunk and naked, by the way. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. You just pick any of those people on the list. You're going to find something you're like, hmm. hmm. Joseph is pretty... Actually, Joseph's kind of cruel to his brothers. I don't know if we can give him a pass for that. But anyway. Yeah, we don't look to the saints who come before us as noble examples to be emulated. Although, in some degree, they are that. Um, he's... Yes, yes. He was bringing them to repent, repentance, and he did it very cruelly. Okay. Um, anyway, we look to Jesus, who is present there with him. We can't look to the saints that are surround us, because we don't see them. But we do see Jesus, right? In his body and blood, in his word being preached. All right. Um, they fix their eyes, the congregation, on Jesus, rather than on the spectators who urge them. Even though 12, 1 to 2 is not selected for All Saints Day in any current lectionary, it could well be used on that occasion provides clear and helpful instruction on what is meant by the communion of saints in the Apostles' Creed. In contrast with the church in the Middle Ages that made too much of the saints, you want to read Luther, you can read Augsburg Confession 21. Yeah, 21. Oh yeah, there it is. Actually, I just need to read it farther. Um, where it talks about the invocation of saints. You have Roman Catholic friends, family, that pray to saints? I mean, Mary would be the most obvious example, but there's others, right? There's patron saint for anything. It's like patron saint of backhoe excavators. Yeah, I mean, whatever. Um, 
Oh, in contrast with the church in the late Middle Ages that made too much of the saints, most Protestant churches do not put sufficient emphasis on the association of the congregation with the saints in the divine service. Although every Sunday you hear with saints and angels and the whole host of heaven or whichever language, right? So, I mean, we try, but most Protestants don't. Um, there even the smallest congregation is not just surrounded by the angels, but also the great, this great cloud of witnesses that stands before God's throne. See Revelation 7. Even though the congregation does, does not pray to them, the invocation of the saints, right? They pray for them. So the saints do pray for us. It therefore needs to remember them in order to imitate them in their faith and their good works, not in their bad works. Don't be like Noah. Be like Noah. Do what God says. Don't be like Noah. Plant the vineyard. That vineyard grew really quick right after the flood because it's like the very next thing he's drunk. Like, where'd the graves come from? Anyway, not just on All Saints Day, but on other saints' days. And so when we do the morning prayer, a few of you watch that each day, I try to make sure we get the commemorations and the fest saints' days. Right, so that, um, what was it this week? Barnabas, right? Yeah, we heard Barnabas on Friday. More than anything else, this passage, which we just read, gets us to focus imaginatively on, the cent on what is central to the divine service and the life of faith. I, I must have reflected on this in the sermon. Hmm. In the divine service, the crucified and exalted Lord Jesus is set before us to contemplate. He is there for us to see with the eyes of faith. There we look to him as the author and finisher of faith, its basis and its goal, its beginning and its end. Thank you, Ethan. You got ahead of him. He is the be-all and end-all of faith. Ooh, I like that. There we see him seated at the right hand of the Father. There he shares his joy with us. There, as we confess our sins and receive God's pardon, we put off every weight and sin that darkens our vision and prevents us from receiving our heaven, or reaching our heavenly goal. There we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who, like Jesus, are so very close to us, even though they are not physically visible to us. Although I have no problem with this. I think I've said this in the morning prayer. It's like, we could have some pictures. We could have angels and saints around us, like pictures of them. Just because children learn that way. And we're all kind of children, right? Visual learners. Yeah. Even though, yeah, it's just a picture. It would remind us of what is really real, even though it's not what we really see. Anyway. I'm going to just keep advocating for that, and someday somebody will be like, hey, I want to put some angels in the, in the chancel and be like, let's do it. All right. Um, we don't really have statue. We have Jesus statue, right? Yeah. Although, have you been to a Rococo church, like in Europe? Anybody been to Europe? We have probably have some Rococo designs in the U.S. Italy. Italy. Oh, yeah. It's a little busy for me. It's like you're surrounded by saints and angels and a lot of other stuff. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> right, if it's in Latin and they don't know Latin. And yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Uh, that's the reason for saying glass windows. I mean, all the ways that we try to... I mentioned that in the sermon. Those things are all great, although they can also be a hindrance sometimes too. Yeah. So, For me, Rococo is a little busy. You get a little distracted from the altar, which is where your focus should be most of the time apart from the font, yeah. Because you're always like, what is the deal with this fat angel right here? You just, you get captivated by the fat little baby angel. <laughs> it's like precious moments everywhere. <laughs> um, 
All right, we're, we're, I'm sorry, I got distracted. They, the saints, this cloud of witnesses, surround us as we receive the bread and wine, Christ's body and blood, as the visible means of his bodily present with us and for us. All this, this is what I wanted to read for you, actually. All this is symbolized by the arrangement of the furnishings in the sanctuary in most of our churches. So I keep threatening to write something on architecture, like for a, another degree program. I never, I didn't get around to it. Eventually, it'll be the thing I say on my deathbed. Well, I should have probably written that thing. Anyway, um, the, way everything, the way everything is arranged in our churches, the focal point is the altar. And actually, I had somebody say that to me this morning. Should we turn on the lights for the altar? Because we had all the rest of the lights off. I didn't say anything. And like, you know, because you know, it's like the focal point of what we're, I'm like, yeah, we should turn the lights on. Uh-huh. The that have the altar in the very center. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a big hip thing to do in the 60s. The I know. Yeah, that's true. Well, especially in the, in the more Protestant churches, because they, they, like medieval Roman Catholics, ironically, um, see what we, what we do on Sunday as primarily service, our service to God. And so then everybody who's doing anything has to be up at the front. This is true if you like have a church that has a band in it. The band will always be in the front. Sometimes they'll put them in the back, but you don't want to put them in the back because they don't sound very good at the back. But they'll be at the front. Not because, you just can't help it. They're performing a little bit. But Ethan doesn't want you to notice him. That's why he's up in the balcony. I'm just Yeah, he's just, he's a helper. He's serving, he's serving us. That's right. Right, but that's why they put everything up at the front. Even they'll put the pulpit, they don't even necessarily call it a pulpit, in the middle, and they'll have an altar table that they'll roll out. That tells you how important the whatever they call the Lord's Supper is, is for them. Yeah, thanks for that. Anyway, ours is our focal point's the altar, which is the throne of grace, the place where Jesus is enthroned together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. On the altar or above it is the crucifix. I just put one on the altar in Lent that was in my office. I just put it on there. I didn't ask anybody. It's, it's small. It, was like, it disappeared one time and then it came back. I don't know. What, it's, it's so small. We could have a bigger one. I should put my name on it. So <laughs> put my name on the bottom. They're like, oh, no, it's pastors. Okay. Anyway, but this is the reason why. On the altar above it is the crucifix, which invites us to remember and contemplate the presence of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus with us in our, as our great high priest. So we have both, right? Jesus showing his hands as he's ascending into heaven, which is effectively what's on the statue. But then we also have the crucified, because it's both. You can't have one without the other. Um, in most churches, the congregation does not completely encircle the altar. You've probably heard this. Have you heard this from me? Maybe not as it receives Christ's body and blood given and shed for the forgiveness of sins because part of the circle belongs to the people of faith who have gone before us. They complete the circle as they adore the Lamb of God together with us. And this passage promotes the communal liturgical vision of Jesus Christ, crucified, exalted, and present among us. This is why I don't like the churches that are in the round, Ethan, um, because it misses this, I mean, it's tradition, it's not necessary, but the churches are oriented toward the east, so we need to pick up the building and rotate it 90 degrees, by the way, someday. I'm joking. Um, but they're facing the east. But, but the idea here that he's, we, we have this, right? You have the altar rail, right? And then you have the altar. 
And then you have the rare dose, right? All sorts of crazy stuff up here, right? Looks like a castle. I'm kind of, right. Yeah, so when you come up to the rail, I'm going to get rid of the castle part. That's, the, that's supposed to be like, you know, in my, in my house there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. There are mansions, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a royal thing. So you've got the altar. And what he's saying is that the altar rail actually goes like this. Right? And you've seen this probably in the picture I use. Um, it's the thumbnail I used for actually the recording of the Bible study. It's, it's the picture of the lamb on the throne. Right? So the lamb's on the throne. And then you have the four living creatures. And then you have the twelve and the twelve. Right? The twelve apostles. So you get, I don't know, they're surrounding them. And then they're surrounding them. Right? So this is what's happening when we're in church. But we only get to be on this side of it. Does that make sense? So when you go to the altar, you're surrounded by the host of witnesses. They're communing with you, but they're on the other side of the wall, so to speak. That's the, that's the architectural idea. It's, in, it's all the way back into the earliest centuries of the Christian church. That's what they were accomplishing. They took the Roman basilica and they imported some theology. They made up some theology to try to explain what they were doing with it. But I think it works. Yeah. Actually, that's not entirely true. The synagogues had a similar idea. Anyway. When I was a child, this altar mm -hmm. was away from the back wall. And you walked out around it. Left. Right, and you received the, the, the host on one side and the, yeah. Which, which... That, I mean, the church, the building was built, what, 1902? It's not, it's not the only one that has that, I, but... I know someplace in our history, I think, is when it says that when they moved it back, I think that it was that that made, I think, when Well, it was in the, when the, when the renovation was done, the pulpit was brought down. Yeah. That was in 50-something, right? Yeah, see, I was, I was um, in Berlin in 56. It was, it was the end of Hubner's thing, so it would have been 40s? Must have no. It was fifties. It was one of those two guys did it. Um, I mean, this, the church in the round thing works, but you have to imagine what's happening there is here's our congregation surrounding the throne, and then the heavenly throne is put on top, and all the saints of it they're like impressed on top of you, right? Whereas this is a more of a, I don't know. It's the vision is different, right? There's half of the church, and the other half is invisible. Right? That's why you would put on the chancel wall, you could have saints and angels and that kind of stuff, because then you're, you're kind of seeing what's on the other side of the altar. You can take it or leave it. I mean, if you don't like it, it's fine, but I take comfort in it when I'm at the altar that I'm there and that, you know, all those whom I've loved, you know, who've departed in the Lord are there with me, right? I just don't see them, but they're there, like through the cloud. Isn't that nice? All right, good. All right, let's keep going. So we're going to run a race now. So we, we had all the people that came before Christ. Now we have Christ being the center. And then now we're going to spin out to us. And, you know, he does set up Jesus as, a, as an example. So I, I guess I'm a little bit, my old tired rant against what would Jesus do. I have to probably give that up for a while. All right, so here. Um, I don't know. Let's just do what's on the screen. Three to six.
endured him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest ye become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. All right, good. This is what I thought was really well connected with what we were doing today. Because remember the antiphon for the psalm, Come, O children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So we had, and then we had wisdom being the teacher, right? Proverbs 9. What was the... Anybody got their bulletin? Yeah, Luke, what is it? Proverbs 9, what? Just, just the beginning? Okay. So let's, let's look at that. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has furnished her table. Here's the problem. Jesus is wisdom, but here it's feminine. It always throws me off. It's like, but wisdom in the Greek, especially Greek, but even in the Hebrew understanding, was, was a feminine. And the Jesus comes along, and he's like, no, he's the wisdom and power of God, too. That's what Paul says. So, anyway, this could be Jesus, too. She has mixed her wine. She has furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Or we could say the church is wisdom. That would work. All right. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. That sounds like a church invitation, doesn't it? That's probably why it was appointed for today. Uh, as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, come and eat of my bread and drink of my, the wine I have mixed. Because remember, you didn't drink wine straight up. The wine they had was like syrup. So you'd mix it with water. We let, we, we let ours be all fortified and nice. But anyway, uh, forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. Right? So now we're talking how wisdom is a teacher, which we're going to talk about. Um, oh, did we, did we get 10 as well? Yes. Yeah, we did. Okay. Uh, so we have all this bit about, which you all know is, is really wise. People who don't want to listen, you don't even bother talking to them. Right? If they're not open to having a conversation and actually considering what you have to say, there's, it's almost pointless. This is like trying to argue with somebody on social media. There's usually no point. It's like, why are you even... Unless you know that you're, you should be on the same page and you actually are coming from a similar position, maybe you can get somewhere. But generally, it's better to be like, hey, can we get a cup of coffee and just talk to each other? Because otherwise, you just keep talking past each other. Um, but then there is, the, there is the aspect of like, if somebody is already wise and they're willing to listen, you can actually give them more wisdom, which is beautiful, right? So... Um, but here at the end, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Well, we should just keep going, right? For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. This is, this is exactly like um, with the giving of the Ten Commandments and the promise attached to obey your father and your mother, that it may go well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Right? You listen to your mom and dad. Because you gain wisdom. That's right. In theory, your mom and dad are at least more experienced, right? Or maybe, as I've told you many times, I'm looking at my children here. As I've told you many times, there's nothing that you've thought about doing that I didn't already do. So that's the advantage of having common genetic, uh, what do you call it? Epigenetics, genetic expression. We have the same, a lot of the same genes. Actually, most of your genes come from your mom, but let's not talk about that. Okay. It, this is actually true, biologically. I don't know if you knew this. Okay. 
yeah. You end up looking like your dad, but most of the, no. There's, different, there's two different kinds of contribution with gene. I, sorry, I forget my biology on that one. All right, so there you go. So we have um, the Lord, fear of the Lord, and we've talked about fear of the Lord before. This is not being af you know, afraid like he's going to kill you, but rather to fear, love, and trust in him, right? To listen. That leads to listening. Fearing the Lord, to trust him, is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. All right. So, uh, so you have that, and then we, I just quoted the psalm. And then we, give, we get here uh, this fancy word that we like so much, which is discipline. Nobody likes this today. Why do we not like, um, what is that, Proverbs? What is he quoting? Proverbs 3, yeah. We don't like this stuff. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Because when you hear that word chastening, what are you thinking? The chastening rod, right? Yeah, the whip. That's right. Yeah, this is corporal punishment, right? This is the parent disciplining the child for wrongdoing. Is that what's going on here? Do nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. All right? So it does seem like... Um, no, wisdom is saying, I know that you're, you see the punishment, or the discipline, I should say, the chastening as punishment, as just, you know, an abusive father, basically. But listen, don't be discouraged when you're rebuked, right? For just, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives, right? So, so that discipline is not for your hurt and your harm. It's not there, it's not there to... You know, because they hate, you know, your father hates you, God the Father, in this case, or the Lord, but it's actually because he wants the best for you, right? And when you think about what we just read in 1 and 2, what are we talking about doing? Running the race. Well, what's one of the things that happens with a, could happen with a race? Obstacles. Obstacles, right. Things that are set before you. What else? Yeah, you go... Yeah, you get distracted, squirrel. You know, go off on, the, on a path, right? You know, like the little puppy dog. Taken off, right? You lose, tra you lose track of the, of the route, right? And what do you need to do? Yeah, yeah. You need to, and that's discipline. And uh, that's why everybody gets a trophy is wrong, by the way. Right? Because that can be a great, that can be actually a great tool is to come in fourth place. <laughs> no medal. Sorry, Luke. Fourth place, fourth place, fourth place. He, you had a tournament. I didn't get, I got first place. You got first place? First place and second place. Before. I thought, oh, but you were telling me that everybody, there were only four, so everybody got a medal. Because the fourth place and the third place got to share the bronze. You're like, why? What? There's a first place bronze and a second place bronze. Gosh. Co-thirds, everybody gets a medal. Martial arts, a tournament. Yeah, and I'm just like, actually, if I were in fourth place, I'd either quit or I'd be like, I'm not going to let that ever happen again. Right? Yeah. And make that guy be fourth place. All right, anyway. Let's go back to the beginning. For consider him who endured. Who's that? Jesus, right? So here, Jesus is example. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, right? 
So when I survey the wondrous cross, you know, I mean, think of all the way that the, the Lenten hymns have us do that contemplation, right? And it's not just like morbid curiosity, like, oh, I wonder how bad the beatings were, that kind of thing, right? But rather, it's to say, um, that's him running the race. And look, he ran it. It's done. And if he's run it, and now you're joined to him in baptism, right? What are you worried about? You will persevere. Uh, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Right? So that's the remedy for, for um, weariness that's just getting tired, right? In the race. Is to look to Jesus. Or when you're discouraged and you think, I'm not going to make it. Look to Jesus. It's one of the greatest confessions of faith that, that I hear as a pastor when somebody says, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure Jesus, you know, Jesus can forgive me. I'm like, that's a wonderful confession of faith. I'm like, what? <laughs> or like, of course you're not sure, right? So let's talk about what Jesus has done, right? Or I'm not sure I'm worthy to receive the Lord's Supper. Well, of course you're not worthy to receive the Lord's Supper, right? But the fact that you, you've already examined your heart and you're confessing to me that your sin is great shows that you need forgiveness of sins, right? And you know it. You're not sure that Jesus has enough forgiveness for you, but here's the gospel, right? And the gospel is proclaimed. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. So that's a kind of a foreshadowing. This is, this is one of the things the preacher teacher is doing. Is he's like, there's persecution coming. There always is. Christians are naive if they think they're not going to be persecuted. Uh, you, might, you might make it through your whole life not having somebody come after you, but um, always be prepared, right? And that Boy Scouts? <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, no, no, it is part of the preacher's job is to say, Jesus suffered, and he said that you'll, you'll have to bear your cross this, you know, the same way. You're going to suffer. Not Just bearing cross is not just suffering for no reason. It's suffering for the sake of your faith in Christ. Um, and be prepared for that. It may come. And if it does come, what is he saying? That's actually the Lord disciplining you so that you stay on the, on the, you keep your eyes on Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, right? Don't leave the path, right? And what does he do when you're starting to leave the path? He actually sends, he allows these attacks to come for the sake of repentance, forgiveness of sins, to come back to the path again. And it's, and it's not, and God, it's not because he hates you, it's because he loves you. That's hard for people to hear, I think. But we, we've said it a number of ways, right? Being a Christian, I've been saying it, it was simple, but not easy. Yeah. Um, but it, it's really, I mean, as much as, as I said, the sermon of the divine service is a hard sell for people, I mean, just really, just being a Christian is a pretty hard sell. Like, look, um, there are great benefits, but you're not really going to experience any of them. Um, there, there's some nice people there, but actually there's also some people that you probably don't want to get to know. You know kind of the arrival. Yeah. Um, kind of a weird place. You know, strange, odd people. I'm looking at Don. Sorry. No. All right, for some reason, my eyes just went right to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's true. I mean, it's quirky, it's weird, and yeah, and it's all, and it's by faith. That's the reason why. It's not by experience. We don't, and, and actually, sometimes it's ugly too. Like, wait a minute, I thought you Christians were supposed to love each other. Yeah, that's true, but we don't. But we forgive each other. As soon as the church doesn't do that, then no longer, no longer is a church effectively. But 
there's anything that will kill the whole congregation, it's, it's not forgiving. Um, whether it's a pastor or congregation, whatever it is, you've heard some of them. Um, I guess we could do a couple more verses. I always go until the bell rings, right? Like you. Oh, because I wanted to talk about this part. We, we won't get through it all, but I read some of that. If you endure, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chase it? But if you are with them, be dads is the answer. Deadbeat dads. They don't chase any sons because they're not even there. Yeah. Of which all have become partakers, and you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of Spirits and live? For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, the chastening seems to be joyful to the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been justified. Okay. Now, this is common to experience, right? No pain, no pain. Give these expressions. Um, and you probably have known people who, uh, uh, children, taught school, children whose parents didn't discipline them. They were great students, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what do they talk about those kids? There's, I'm trying to think of what the nickname, what do we call children? Unruly? What? Wild and crazy? Right. But, uh, I mean, what, we're like perennially having uh, infants and toddlers in our house, it seems like. So we're always doing this all the time. And it's good for the older kids because they see, I think, hopefully you see, it's like, no, mom and dad is, they're not, they weren't making my life terrible. Because now you can look back and you say, well, sometimes you actually have to discipline your siblings, right? Mm -hmm. And you see, oh, this is, it's, it's just, what? You never acted like that. Arguably, you acted worse. Because <laughs> they, see, they benefit from the cloud of witnesses, which isn't really that much of a cloud, actually. It's their siblings. They're like, you know, like when we're doing like evening prayers, it was a lot harder when they were little, to the point where we didn't do that most of the time. But now that there's older examples in the home, the little ones see this is what we're supposed to do. Because, you know, they said, they're right, they their hands to do this, right? Because they've been prayed by it, and there's, been, there's fruit. Um, this is a this is a hard lesson for church. It's a hard lesson for school, our school as well. And it's one that I'm kind of constantly kind of working on. Is that you know I have standards that are fairly high as far as catechesis, what we should learn as, as Christians, uh, which is the whole Bible, <laughs> Christ at the center. Um, but to get there, it seems like that's impossible. There's just no way that we could come to know and understand most of the scriptures. Even in a lifetime, which is actually probably true, because I don't—I haven't even read big chunks of the Bible, not not in any kind of like detailed way. So that's why we study keep studying books of the Bible rather than topical things, so that I actually read the Bible with. I have to read it in order to prepare to talk to you about it. 
right? Read it with detail. Um, but on the other hand, it's like run the race, right? Just do the work, and the work is hard. And in a way, it's discipline because we don't have time for it. You know, we don't like it. You know, nobody wants to go and do this. Like, seems like an academic thing. I don't think it's academic because it benefits faith and life. But still, you know, well, some of you have been working at the Bible for a while. You know that there is the fruit does come out. I mean, there is fruit. It is beneficial to you. But when you start, especially when you start, especially with children, right? Like, memorize this. Like, no. And we got to work at it, right? Whether it's the catechism, or we're talking about the memory verses we do each week, yeah. or the hymns. There's an atmosphere in there. You know, I mean, yeah, the first like ten times you sing something, it's going to be, especially if it is just by nature a harder hymn, it's going to take a while. But that's discipline. And maybe even it hurts. It's painful sometimes. Like I lost my breath because <laughs> it's two pages and it just keeps so fast. Just, just like with like um, memorizing music, it repeating something over and over again can get really annoying. Think about what was it for you? Like nine months that we were only doing pedal work. Yeah. This teacher made him. That's all he did is work. He was working on pedal technique. It's like our martial arts is this way too, right? I mean, how long have you guys been training? You don't, they don't know if they got their belts yet. Mm. Find out it's not high again. You're, you're like purple, right? You're blue. There's no purple. Okay. Blue. Purple's in. Yeah, purple. So they did testing. Five years they did testing. Some, do it, some martial arts do it by years, others do it by just. Whenever the master says you're. They approached it more like you approached the attic. Yeah, exactly. You do the work. Right. Um, why did I want to what did I, oh this word chastening? Uh, what what does your Bible say? Anybody else have a different word for this? Um, if you endure what? I have discipline here and infliction of pain as a, as a footnote. Okay. Um, we should talk about this just quickly and we'll deal more of it next week. The word is idea, idea, I should say. Verb form. That's the, the root for our word pedagogue. Pedagogical, pedagogy, to teach, you know, how to teach. It's Ideon, which is a student, uh, like, but it's master-student relationship. So, um, Ideon is a, is a student who's training. Uh, and it is interesting that, um, well, I'll just read you here. There's, there's, there's a range of meanings. It can mean the rearing of a child. Well, in that when he just established that this chastening is of the Lord, and I'd say like, like that of a father for a child. You mean training and teaching or education. Okay. Um, culture, its result is culture, learning, and accomplishments. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's both. It's either the rearing of children or it's teaching education. Well, of course those two go together, because who teaches the children usually? Parents, and then they, they often dele delegate that to teachers, right? Tutors and others. This is the same thing. This is how Paul refers to the law in Galatians. Uh, as Galatians 4, where he calls the law a tutor or a guardian or watchman. What is it? I don't know. That's translating. Is it Galatians 4? Because that's the child master. No. 
They're all sons. Oh, there it is. 25. All right, so, but after faith has come, therefore the law, so it's Galatians 3, was our, there's the word. This is, a, this is the noun form, not the verb form, but it's the same, it's the same word. To bring us to Christ, the educator, if you like. Make sense? Or really the parent, in a way. Uh, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor, under a tutor, under the pedagogue. The pedagogue. We're the Pythagorean. So it is interesting that it's just, I think what happens with these, with the English translated degree, when we hear, even when we hear, um, what was the word here in the James? That we are chastened. We hear it as like punishment. It's not punishment. Discipline is not punishment. It has a punishing character to it, I suppose. It can be received that way. But it, it's, it's teaching. It's a form of teaching. So, so that's why suffering is actually, I will refer to it as a kind of way of the word teaches us. It doesn't necessarily mean it's good, it leads us from what it's bad to good. But if we endure suffering, you know, certain suffering produces endurance falsehoods. So, this endurance and running the race comes, actually, one of the ways it comes is through suffering. Which seems counterintuitive, yeah. Seems like a paradox, right? Because if, if everything went easy for you and you had everything you needed and the church was cared for and everything was perfect, then everybody would want to be a part of it and believe, right? No. You would need it. No, but you would need it. That's right. There's nothing's wrong. There's no need for Christ. There's no need for forgiveness. So I wanted to introduce that idea. We'll have to come back to it because we didn't really deal too much with it. Alright, any questions before we disembark? Thanks for joining us. That's great. I just like to talk too much. No, no questions? Alright, we'll talk more about that next week. So we'll jump back in. Where were we? For my reference? We just read it. And we, I just mentioned the chasing word. What's that? Verse 7? Oh, yeah, not verse 7. Okay, good. Yeah, because I want to draw in some of the Old Testament texts that we didn't get to look at yet. Um, uh, we, already, we talked about the Proverbs, but there's some other ones at the end. Alright, let's go over that. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you have revealed to us your Son, Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask that you, by your Spirit, would give us to run the race that you set before us, um, that you bring us uh, to its finish, to its perfection that was accomplished on the cross. Uh, that we, on the last day, would be raised with all the dead to see uh, saints and angels who we believe are present with us, but see them face to face. Yes, it's in Jesus' name. Yeah. Right, very good. Thank you.